change in the power of your spirit for your praise and glory. Amen. I I love reading Christian biographies. I I love reading of men and women who have been sold out for Jesus, their their readiness to give up everything to serve Jesus in in far-flung parts of the world, their willingness to suffer for the Christian truth and, and so safeguard the gospel for future generations, their eagerness to exalt Christ whatever the cost. I love reading uh, Christian biographies. I love reading about men like Gideon Owsley in this book, uh, Wesley and Men Who Followed. Uh, Owsley was a Methodist evangelist in, uh, in Ireland at the end of the 18th century. I love the story of when Gideon Owsley heard a preacher saying that all people would go to heaven. He rose to his feet when the sermon was done and publicly denounced the preacher saying, I am striving to persuade you that you should not preach false doctrine and to guard those who heard you from its effects. I hope that won't be necessary today, Um, but do realise it was at the end of the sermon, so uh, at least I've got until then. Uh, Because of his boldness, Gideon Owsley was was hated by many people. He was threatened often and, and suffered physically, so when he preached in villages in the open air, he would often stand outside shops that had a glass window uh, to deter people from throwing stones at him. Christian biographies are fantastic. They They give me, if if I may put it this way, a kick up the spiritual backside when I'm feeling lethargic in the Christian life. They inspire me to give more fully myself in serving Christ. Uh, John Piper, the uh, preacher and writer, says the same as he exalts people to read Christian biographies. He, He writes this, Biographies have served as much as any other human force in my life to resist the inertia of mediocrity. Without them, I tend to forget what joy there is in relentless, God-besotted labour and aspiration. I love that. He says uh, he needs something to help him to resist the inertia of mediocrity. Do you know that feeling? Giving God second best? Do you need something to give you a bit of a a poke from time to time? Because you're living half-hearted lives for Christ. It's a constant problem for us. Constant problem for me. I wake up in the morning and you know, sometimes I'm all ready to go for Christ. I'll do anything for him. And by lunchtime, already I've wasted the morning. Well now, this is the big issue in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. And as we begin the second week of our tour to ancient Israel, in this chapter, we, well this chapter should do more than any Christian biography could do for us. It won't be easy reading. Hold on to your seats this evening. It should give us that that kick that we need if we're lethargic, if we've got this inertia of mediocrity, as Piper calls it. It should leave us recommitted to Jesus, committing ourselves wholly, completely, unreservedly in his service because we don't want second best anymore. Last week we saw that as we open the pages of the Bible to the book of Malachi, we arrive in Jerusalem at approximately 400 BC. And in the second half of chapter 1, we step into the temple, the very heart of Jewish religion. So allow me, if I may, this evening, to kind of act as your tour guide as we walk through these verses this evening. I'll give you a little bit of background before we start the tour. The temple has uh, been recently restored 
The Persians allowed the Israelites to return from exile about 70 years before Malachi's day. And under Ezra, do you remember him in the Old Testament? The Israelites immediately set about the task of restoring the temple. Now as we look around the temple through Malachi chapter 1, we'll see that it's fully functional. If we step into verses 8, 9 and 10, we can see that the priests are performing live animal sacrifices. We've chosen a good day to visit the temple. Today we can hear God's messenger, Malachi, standing in the temple, delivering an oracle from the Lord to his people. So join the back of the crowd and listen in. Verse 6. A son honours his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is the honour due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. Well, this is certainly unexpected. We, we've got fireworks in the temple. Through Malachi, the Lord is condemning the priests. The spiritual leaders of the day stand accused. And you see the accusation there? Verse 6, they show contempt for God. Now, just allow that to sink in a little. The leaders of God's people are thoroughly disrespectful to the Lord Almighty. We might expect it from unbelievers, but not from God's people and certainly not from the leaders of his people. So we come to the first point on the handout. God's statement, my people don't respect me or honour me. My people show contempt for me. This is quite a declaration in verse 6, isn't it? God's people despise the Lord. It's astonishing. It's quite alarming. Remember, this is just 70 years after returning from exile. In the book of Haggai, immediately after they returned from exile, when the Israelites were rebuilding the temple, we read that the people feared the Lord. They valued him above everything else. They were thrilled to be back in the land and serving him. Yet in no time at all, they are treating him with contempt. It's a terrible thing to see. And desperately it can happen to Christians too. I can think of people who who began the Christian life with great enthusiasm for the Lord. People who pledge their whole lives to serve him, who say that they'll go anywhere for him, do anything for him, give up everything for him. But now, some years on, well, they still go to church, still call themselves Christian, still involved with God's people. But that, that, that spark has gone. No fire in their belly. Their willingness to do anything, go anywhere, give up everything, it's not there anymore. Now their life is marked by compromise. And their life of compromise is a mark of their attitude towards the Lord. That's what's happening in Malachi's day. Hence God's statement, verse 6, where is the honour due to me? Where is the respect due to me? You show contempt for my name. First thing then, God's statement, my people show contempt for me. Secondly, the people's question. They ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Look look at the end of verse 6 there. See, God makes this statement, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You've placed defiled food on my altar, says the Lord. But you ask, how have we defiled you? The Lord replies again by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Now, as we read um, these verses, the end of verse 6 and into 7, I imagine this sort of look of innocence on, on the people's faces as they ask, How? How have we shown contempt for your name? How have we defiled you, Lord? 
To look at them, you wouldn't think that butter would melt in their mouth. But they, they don't know why the Lord speaks as he does in verse 6. But you see, that, is the, that, that makes it that much worse, doesn't it? We, we, we have uh, three children, uh, uh, Susanna and Bethan and, and Joshua, ten-year-old twins, Susanna and Bethan and, and seven-year-old Joshua. If I challenge my children after they've been naughty, I find myself getting more annoyed with them when they're not prepared to admit they're wrong. Do you find that, parents? When they say, what have I done? It infuriates me. Because when they say, what have I done? I think they're either lying or they really don't know they've been naughty and either way it's pretty desperate. And sometimes I say to them, if you really don't know that what you've done is wrong, then I'm even more worried about you. That's what's going on here. Here is the father in verse 6, the loving father who last week declared his love for his people. Do you remember in verse 2 if you were here, I have loved you. I have loved you in the past. I will love you in the future. I love you now. We saw the extent of God's love. God not only says it, but he has already demonstrated his love for them in choosing them in the first place. It's amazing what we saw last week. So here is the loving father rebuking his children as any good father will. Because he loves them, he's pointing out how disrespectful they are and like naughty little children, they can't see it or they refuse to see it. And their response just goes to show how far gone they really are. They plead innocence. End of verse 6, they ask the Lord, How? How have we shown contempt for your name, Lord? And so the Lord asks, answers them in verse 7, well, you, you place defiled food on my altar. And their reply, how have we defiled you? It's worrying, isn't it? Even as the Lord spells it out, they, they can't see it or they refuse to see it. God's statement, you show contempt for my name. The people's question, how, how have we shown contempt for your name? And then the Lord's reply, The Lord's reply comes in verses 7 to 14. The rest of the chapter is the Lord's explanation or demonstration, if you like, of of how his people show contempt for his name. And as we look at this, it might not at first seem obvious to us, but as we look at this, we will see how we do the same, how we show contempt for God's name. Now, it all revolves around the sacrifices. Look at verse 8. They were bringing blind, crippled, diseased animals for sacrifice. Look, look right towards the end of the chapter, uh, uh, halfway through verse 13, we see the same thing. Uh, the people bringing injured, crippled, diseased animals as sacrifices. And here's the crucial thing to note before we really dig into the detail. Their approach to the sacrificial system demonstrated their contempt for God. Uh, So verse 8, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Now there's the crucial question. Is it wrong to bring blind, uh, crippled animals for sacrifice to the temple? Well, look, if you're in any doubt at all, come back with me to Leviticus chapter 1. You can keep your your hand out in Malachi. We're going to come straight back. But uh, just uh, so you can see it for yourself, come back with me to Leviticus chapter 1. It's page 102 uh, in the church Bibles. Uh, The third book uh, in uh, in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Page 102 
Uh, Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 3. Now look, speaking to most Christians, uh, I I realise that Leviticus is is, is not a book that many Christians know well. Uh, There might be one or two here who feel that Leviticus is their book. What's your favourite book of the Bible? Oh, Leviticus. Uh, But there aren't many who say that. And I realise that most people, when they start to, I'll have a go at Leviticus through my quiet times, they usually get to about chapter 3 or 4 and they're they're all confused. Well, I I understand all that. But I reckon anyone can get to chapter 1, verse 3 of a morning and still be with it. If you can't, you need more help than we can give you here. But anyway, chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, Let me read from verse 1, but verse 3 is the key verse for us this evening. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. Here it is. If the offerings are burnt offering from the herd, he's to offer a male without defect. Now look, anybody can read that far and not get lost. It's clear as anything, isn't it? A male without defect. If you're going to bring a, a, an animal to a sacrifice, a male without defect, so there's no excuse. I mean, it's all over God's law, but it, it was very clear here. God's people knew what the law required of them. A sacrifice should be without defect. So come back with me to Malachi chapter 1, verse 8, and we'll come back to the question, and we'll ask the question again, because now we know the answer. Verse 8, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? Yes, it most certainly is. When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Yes, it it is wrong. Picture the scene. People bringing poor, pathetic animals for sacrifice. Lambs hobbling into the temple with white sticks. The question on everybody's lips, will they make it to the altar alive or will they peg out before they get there? What are these people doing bringing these sacrifices? And what are the priests doing accepting them? Well, make no mistake about it. The priests may accept the sacrifice, but the Lord will not. Look what he says in verse 13. Halfway through verse 13, when you bring injured, crippled or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? No, you shouldn't, Lord. Because these are not sacrifices, not really. Because it doesn't cost these people anything to give these animals. They're pleased to see the back of them. See, who wants injured, crippled, blind, diseased animals in their flocks? They're no good for breeding with. You can't sell them. They eat good pasture. Better to get rid of them. We don't want them. We'll give them to God. Do you see the contempt they had for the Lord? The, the, the people are guilty in bringing these kinds of sacrifices and the priests are guilty in accepting them. And these pathetic specimens were wheeled into the temple. The priests should have turned them straight away. They should have been saying, how dare you bring that in here? And if that's not bad enough, look at verse 14. The Lord goes on, cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Now, we don't like this language of cursing, but believe me, the Lord doesn't pull his punches. If you want to look it up later, look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's a a chapter all about curses and blessings. Uh, Curses for disobedience and blessing for obedience. 
And so the Lord, picking up that language here, says, cursed is the cheek. This is strong language, and rightly so. Look at the deceit and you'll see why it needs to be so strong. See, cursed is the cheek, verse 14, who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal. This is a vow that this uh, Israelite has made all on his own. It's perfectly reasonable that he hadn't made the vow in the first place. He's decided to make this vow. He vows to sacrifice an acceptable male sheep to God, a male without defect. No one twisted his arm to do it, but when it comes to it, can you see him surveying his flock as, he, as he's about to go off to the temple? Now, now, which one shall I take? I know the law tells me to take an unblemished lamb, but um, well, Dopsy is good for breeding. I'm going to take her. And Benjamin has already offered me 27 shekels for Fluffy over there. I know the names aren't great, but stay with me. I really don't want to, I don't want to part with these good sheep, but, but I made a vow. Hey, no one's looking. I'll take poor Scruffy. Poor Scruffy. She's on her last legs anyway. The wild dogs nearly finished her off last night. I'll put her out of her misery. Who does he think he's kidding? The sheep may be blind, but God's not. Be sure of this. You, 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 you can't pull the wool over God's eyes, if you'll pardon the pun. Do you see the point? This is not sacrifice. They're pleased to see the back of these sheep. It doesn't cost them anything to take these animals to the temple. And so understanding the state of affairs, it's not difficult to answer the question of verse 9. See, verse 9, with such offerings from your hands, will God accept you? Will he accept you? Not will he accept the sacrifices. Now we're seeing the real problem. Of course he won't. And so it's no surprise that the Lord continues in verse 10, Oh, that you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. It's just as well we're doing the temple tour today because the Lord's recommendation is it won't be open tomorrow. Close the doors of the temple, extinguish the fires of the sacrificial altar. I don't want your sacrifices, says God. I will accept no offering from your hands. But Lord, how about if we start giving you the best? Verse 10, I will accept no offering from your hand. Not even a good one? No offering. See, the problem is much deeper than the, than the sacrifices. The, the second-rate sacrifices are just the symptoms. There's a serious spiritual disease here. When I was uh, in my early 20s, I had a thing called scarlatina. It's apparently quite like scarlet fever, but it's a bit different. Scarlatina. I um, developed this sort of, sort of purple row. It looked, like, looked a bit like uh, that, that big dinosaur. You know, I'm not very big, but I was just covered in purple rash. A sort of reddish purple rash. And uh, I went to see the doctor, wondered what was going on. And uh, the doctor, you, you won't be surprised, didn't give me anything to put on the rash. Just gave me medicine to deal with the disease. Now the priests and the Israelites have a spiritual disease. The, the sacrifices are the spots, they're the rash. But there's a deeper problem that needs to be dealt with. The real problem, they've got a serious heart condition. We saw it in verse 6. They are contemptuous towards God. And these offerings show their contempt for the Lord. And that's why in verse 10, the Lord will accept no offering from their hands, not even a good sheep. 
Because sheep are not the problem, it's the heart that's the problem. They need a change of heart, not a change of sheep. And until they get their heart sorted out, not even an unblemished lamb will do. Their whole attitude is wrong. Look at verse 12. You profane it, that is, you profane the Lord's name by saying of the Lord's table, it's defiled and of his food, it's contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously. They're bored with God. Serving him is just a huge inconvenience. Uh, the situation is in Israel is dire. You see, the Israelites are simply going through the motions, but even the motions they're going through aren't very impressive. It's terrible. But before we get all, all high and mighty, before we start looking down our noses at these people, before we get on our sanctimonious high horse, we've got to admit that many of us are right here with the Israelites. It's been the challenge for me as I've been looking at this this week. We too, I too, give Jesus second best. Actually, often it's third and fourth best. For me too, serving him sometimes has become a bore. Oh, we never put it like that, but that's really what's going on here. We don't sacrifice animals, of course. When Jesus died on the cross, he poured an end to all the need for that. Jesus Christ was the one perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We don't sacrifice animals any longer, but we are still to sacrifice not animals, but ourselves. Again, keep, keep your, uh, your hand out in, in Malachi and come with me to Romans chapter 12. Uh, page 1139. Page 1139 in Romans chapter 12. Here's the sacrifices we're to make. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. See what Paul is writing there? He's saying this, Christian, in view of all that God has done for you, in view of his mercy toward you, not punishing you as you deserve, but giving you forgiveness and eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. In view of God's mercy, offer your whole life as a sacrifice to God. Christian, we're to be the sacrifices, living sacrifices, but as someone once said, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. We become just like these Israelites. They were brought out of exile and, and yet in no time they'd slumped to this. When we become Christians, Jesus Christ brings us out of spiritual exile. We are brought back into relationship with God and at first we may be excited and thrilled by his love. Do you remember that first love you had for Jesus? Do you remember that first time you understood the gospel? Do you remember how your heart raced, how you'd do anything for him? Yet for some, in no time at all, serving Jesus is a bit of an inconvenience, really. I fear for a number of us here that the gospel has just become a ticket to heaven. I've got my sin forgiven, so now I'm just going to live how I like. Of course, we don't live 
outrageously immoral lives because we know that's not really acceptable but we're not really sold out for Christ because I've got my ticket for heaven. Oh, I'll go to church, I'll still turn up to things but giving my best through the whole of my life. Come back to, with me to Malachi as we sort of come to the end of our tour of the temple and and as we do, I think we'll see what state we're in. I see it's no longer about these Israelites of old, it's about us now. Now, look at verse 8, because it's a test for us. God has already said, we've already seen it, when you bring these blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Here's the test. Try offering those sacrifices to your governor, would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? See, there's the test. Try offering it to your governor. Would, would this be acceptable at work? Our, our twin girls, uh, Susanna and, uh, and Bethan, are in year six, that school. Now, for those of you who still work in old money, like me, that's the top year in junior school. That's what year six is. Uh, I, I'm looking to the sort of people in that kind of part of the congregation. Um, Next year, that means they'll be going up to secondary school. And, and so just the other week, Caroline and I, along with the girls, looked around Tapton School, which is kind of the feeder school. And I enjoyed looking around. It was amazing. I wanted to go back to school. It was, it was tremendous. And, and as we walked around uh, the school, we walked into the, the science department and I saw Bunsen burners on. <laughs> I'd not seen Bunsen burners for years. Remember Bunsen burners? They were terrific. And it, and it all came flooding back. And I kind of felt guilty for all those things I did with Bunsen burners. When the <laughs> and then I felt, apart from guilty, I felt stupid because in chemistry I got a U in my O level. I mean, that really is stupid, isn't it? You know, U stands for unclassified. I know it actually stands for useless. And it, all it means is you can't even write your name on the top of the table. Everybody got more than a U. I didn't. Bunsen burners. And so it made me think, Bunsen burners. Oh, and litmus paper. Do you remember litmus paper? Remember that stuff you dipped in? Now, was it, um, if it turned blue, it was acidic, and if it turned red, it was alcohol? Which way? Oh, it's something. No, people are not. No, 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 of course not. It's the other way round. I don't know, I got a U. <laughs> Actually, I do know because, uh, because I looked it up on Wikipedia this week. Uh, blue litmus paper turns red under acidic conditions. Is that right? Yeah, I'm getting a nod now, you see. There we go. Now, look, verse 8 is a, a spiritual litmus test. Dip verse 8 into our lives and it shows us the colour of our love for Jesus. So here's the litmus test. Try offering it to your governor. Would your boss accept it, this sacrifice? And if he wouldn't, then why do you try to palm it off on God, who is our master, verse 6? Should we do the test? As a staff team, we've been thinking a lot recently about daily Bible reading and prayer times. So let's start by doing the test with our quiet times. What if we have a, a second-rate prayer life? Now look, I, I know we can start talking about length of prayer and all that, and I, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to talk about attitudes to prayer. What is our attitude in prayer? Do we rush our prayer time? Oh, we do it, because we know that we're supposed to, but we can't wait to get on with other things. Is that it? Imagine that, taking that attitude into the office. I haven't got time to stop. I've got far more important things to do. Would your boss accept that? Would you spend the fag end of the day in prayer rather than the best part so you find yourself falling asleep during your prayers? Try offering that to your boss. 
falling asleep at work? Is your prayer time a bit of a bore, really? Meeting with the creator of the universe, a bit of a hassle? Oh, sorry, I've got to bother you. Imagine yawning your way through a business meeting, looking out of the window, sighing loudly. You'd soon be in looking for a new job, and in the current economic climate, that's not a good idea. Your boss wouldn't accept that. Then why do you give it to the Lord Almighty? Duff sacrifices betray our heart condition. What we give of ourselves to the Lord shows whether we honour him and respect him or whether we have contempt for him. That was verse 6, wasn't it? That's where we started. Romans 12, verse 1, In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies, your whole lives as living sacrifices. The only appropriate response to all that Jesus has done for you and for me is to give him everything, all of our lives, all the time, all for him. Not because God needs our sacrifice, incidentally, but out of love for him, out of love for all that he's done for us. Please don't reverse the order. This is important. We don't bring ourselves as a sacrifice to get right with God. We cannot get ourselves right with God. We've seen tonight that we cannot get ourselves right with God. We see the sorts of lives we live. And even if you try to pull up your socks tomorrow morning, you will soon be giving second-rate sacrifices. No, we cannot get ourselves right with God. And that's why God gave the one perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God without defect, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to be our atoning sacrifice. That comes first. He died for me to show me God's mercy. I don't deserve any of it, but he died for me. But in view of God's mercy, overwhelmed and thrilled by all that God has done for you, now offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, not because God needs our sacrifice, but out of love for him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength, all of life, all the time, all for him. Now, I guess many of us, indeed probably most of us here, know that that's how we should live. But I'm always struck by something a former colleague of mine used to say. She would say this, human beings have an extraordinary ability to compartmentalise life. Have you noticed that? So although we know we are to give the whole of our lives to God, we keep some areas as as no-go areas for Christ. No, you can't go there, Jesus. I'll serve you, Lord, but not when it comes to money. I'll serve you, Lord, but, but you're not having my career. I'll serve you, Lord, but no, I'm going I'm to do what I like when it comes to sex. I'll serve you, Lord, but leisure, family time, holidays, friendships, where are the no-go areas for you? Yes, Jesus, you can have some of me, most of me, but I, I'm not giving... I'm, no, I want to keep that for me. In that area, God, I'll give you second best, but not the best. Now you see, if that's going to change, and I think this is what this passage is challenging us on, if that is going to change, then it it needs to begin with the mind. There's no need to turn it back, but you can look it up later. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is where the battle's won tonight. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength.
So where in your mind do you refuse Jesus Christ's access? I'll I'll not allow God to control the way I I think. The way I think about him. I'm not prepared to do some serious reading and understanding his word better. No, I've got enough understanding. I don't really want to do any more. The way I think about others. I, I indulge in unhelpful thoughts about others. Dwell on those thoughts. The way I think about my time. Uh, God, you can have an awful lot, but you can't have that evening, that day, that vacation, my retirement. It's already gone on up here, hasn't it? In some areas of life, he barely gets a look in. So, So where does all this leave us? Well, look again at verses 10 and 11 as we close. The Lord says, verse 10, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. And verse 11, My name will be great among the nations. From the rising to the setting of the sun in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. See, in verse 10, God says, Shut the temple doors. And although they didn't, one day he did, permanently. There is no temple today. No altar, no sacrifices. God did shut the temple door after Jesus came. For Jesus is the true temple. He is the place we go to to meet God. Jesus is the one perfect sacrifice of the temple, the one who was without defect, the unblemished Lamb of God, who on the altar of the cross takes away the sin of the world. Our temple doors have been shut. We don't need the temple anymore. I don't need to keep offering sacrifices for my sin. At the cross I am forgiven for the way I dishonour and disrespect God. What a relief when you see what you and I are really like. What a relief. Thank God for Jesus. And his death is enough. Hold on to this. You and I are forgiven for our half-heartedness, for our inertia of mediocrity towards God. Hang on to this. Jesus deals with all, all my sin, all of my sin. So the temple has been shut because I don't need it anymore. And now, verse 11, people from every tribe and language and nation bring pure offerings to God. Isn't it wonderful? People from all over the world look to Jesus and they know their half-heartedness and they are overjoyed that they can be forgiven, that even though they've treated God with such contempt, he forgives them anyway through Christ. They are overjoyed and overwhelmed by God's grace and his mercy and in view of God's mercy they offer themselves in living sacrifices. The great autobiographies, the great biographies of the past that we've read the people who give their whole lives to him. Not wanting to give him second best, not wanting to have no-go areas in their lives, not settling for second best. Here's the motivation for living as we should, the cross of Christ, the gospel of forgiveness, the love of God as we saw last week, chapter 1, verse 2. The God who as a father loves his children, loves us enough to rebuke us so that we'll repent of our contempt for him so that we'll respect him and honour him again. 
and the marvellous mercy of God is changing hearts and lives all over the world so that today his name is not dishonoured but end of verse 14 his name is feared among the nations today verse 11 in every place all over the world incense and pure offerings are brought to his name pure offerings and the question for us tonight is whether we will bring pure offerings too or not let's pray together